Now I'm uh, retired, as it were. I've got a project that I've been planning to do for some time, which is to write a biography of my father, Tom Mullin. He was born in 1927 in the Black Country and died in Suffolk in 1977, so he had a brief life of 50 years. He was a painter, a printmaker, a sculptor, and then a novelist, a playwright, and was for many years a picture restorer. He was born to a Grand Mason. His father died when he was six, sent off to Masonic boarding school from six years old to 16. In his teenage years, um, he was actually, and this was like one of those stories that he'd tell and you didn't know whether it was the truth or not. Anyway, he was trained to correct a, a, a stammer that he had, a really bad speech impediment. He was trained to um, get rid of it by uh, the King's therapist, Lionel Logue, who is, of course, the subject of the film The King's Speech. And uh, Tom, actually, there is evidence, because Tom, remember he's the Masonic son from the boarding school, wrote to uh, uh, Logue, Uh, expressing his thanks and this is the the quote from the book the following month Logue received an especially effusive letter from a Tom Mallin of Sutton Coldfield Birmingham noting how both his mother and his friends had noticed the difference since he had started consulting Logue my friends will say I have changed yes but for the better Mallin wrote Now I begin to realise that the voice can be so beautiful, satisfying and expressive. It is a wonder I haven't tumbled to it before. Sir, how can I ever thank you for making me so happy? He was due to go to an interview a couple of weeks later. And I will remember everything you have taught me. I will be sure of impressing them. So there it was. A story I didn't know was true, suddenly... Obviously, it is true. And then uh, he told me about his teenage years. He he boasted that he'd taken out the film star, well, she became a film star, Hazel Court. Now, Tom was a little younger than she, a year or two, and there's no reference to him in her autobiography, though she did step out with a lot of young men, I seem to believe. However... Hazel did live in the same suburb of Sutton Coldfield as Tom's mother. So there was the big connection with that. Tom, at 16, got into the Birmingham School of Art and tried to perfect things which might impress young females, such as applying soap to his hair as if the more expensive brill cream. Um, But on one of those dates when he had his... He had jet black hair, jet black hair all creamed down. It was one of those dates, it rained, and Tom's hair sort of fizzed out like a bowl of washing up water. Um, He also cut a small nick, and actually had it even in adult, he had a small nick in the top of his right thumbnail. This was to enable him to light a red-headed match in the cinema, he said, without resorting to sandpaper on the side of the box. This was, of course, to impress a date, a girl. 
However, on one occasion, the match got caught under his nail, setting his thumb alight, and she scarbered, scarbered out of the building, wasn't seen again, and Tom was left in agony. Tom, from the Birmingham School of Art, won a scholarship to the Royal College. National service, 1945 to 1947, halted all that. He spent two years in Palestine, which had a dramatic effect on him that I'll be able to explore more in the biography. Anyway, he transformed from a Masonic captain to an existential rebel, dyeing his demob suit red and growing his hair long. He was indeed a bohemian, and he rejected the Royal College and ended up at the more friendly Anglo-French Art Centre. Soon married, with a child, at 21, Tom took a job sweeping a gallery. Soon, seeing his skills, Tom was trained up as a picture restorer and worked in Bond Street most of his working life from 1949 to 1969. In 1950, he, my mum and we two children moved out of London to Clare in Suffolk. Tom worked weekdays in London, sleeping on the gallery floor, so I only saw him weekends until he moved entirely to Suffolk in about 1961. Tom set about doing up the old stables in her grounds. It was a sort of ramshackle place, but he did up the, the studios really well. They were huge. He'd never stopped painting and renewed his efforts. There was also a mad year or two of making sculpture. Most, uh, mostly were sort of female figures or forms. Many were buried under the lawn. Tom was not entirely happy, though, and this had been expressed a little bit earlier in, in a story I've sort of discovered, which is that when Tom was restoring, I remember once him telling me a story which was he could uh, smuggle uh, masterpieces across the channel to Paris uh, if their need arose, uh, and I'm sure he was um, met people who were in that line of business. Anyway... The evidence for this comes from a letter from a friend he wrote to in Paris. Tom implored this guy, I think his name was James, to lend him his studio for a month. And uh, he's, Tom said he'd fed up the whole thing. He was thinking of ditching everything and running away to Paris to become a proper artist. Anyway, this artist said, you can't come to Paris, 1957 or when it is. Uh, all the artists have left Paris. They've all gone to province. They, you know, Paris is a dump for art at that time. So he was put off the idea of doing it. But the story that Tom told me was that the perfect crime before x-rays and that, the perfect crime was to take your two masterpieces, paint over them as, you know, a, a, a budding artist would, you know, paint your own paintings, take them over through customs, through everything, and everybody has a look at the, the paintings. You say, I'm a budding artist, I'm going to Paris. It sounds really good. You take them to the studio in Paris, you wash them down, wash your painting away, and there, there's the masterpiece. You've got it through customs. Everything's all fine and dandy. Anyway, it's a great story, but it didn't happen. Right, how Tom started writing, he'd always read incredibly uh, a lot. I think it was to get away from school and certainly when he was working he'd read a, uh, three novels a week, I know. One on the train from Clare 
to London, one on the way back and then one in the week. Anyway, uh, in 1963, he found a friend's diary. On one page, it said, Tom always talks about writing, but he'll never write. He's a dreamer like the rest of us. From that day forth, Tom became a writer. He just, everything else was out the window. He was a writer. Then it it, it all began to happen six years later when uh, my mum, his wife, told him to, he'd got to do something with his manuscripts. There were loads of them. So by dint of sending them out, uh, Alison and Busby, in 1970, published three of his novels, one after the other, in very short time, Dodecahedron, Nut and Erowina. Um, and at the same time, he started having plays produced in theatre in uh, London, in Edinburgh and New York. And famously, uh, Harold Pinter came to one of the plays and was very, very uh, encouraging, and that got back into the sort of networking and all that. So that was all exciting for him. And he began writing radio plays too, and writing radio plays became his sort of thing. Um, Dodeca Hedron Hedron was his most acclaimed novel, and was very nearly made into a film in the USA uh, in 71, 72, possibly 73. And um, I've recently been um, contacted by a professor who wants some information. He's writing um, a a biography about a producer over there who did read Tom's script. Anyway, it didn't get made. Tom died at 50, but packed a lot in. He always told us children's stories, and um, when I deal with the realities, as I said, I find them, you know, they're, they're, they're true, they're true. And I'd love to think this one is true because it kind of sums up Tom in a way, that, that rebel, uh, um, probably without a cause. One story from his national service when he and Johnny were being dressed down by a major. The major had a dozy big cat sat by just sort of gently purring in the background so that the major could lean out and stroke it, I expect. And the major spoke really slowly. Oh, so he's about to fall off the edge of his seat, you know. And so each phrase that he spoke was separated from the other. So it's like, like these pauses. And as the two men were being told off, they covered the adored cat in spit from head to toe, entirely soaked it through, between phrases, as it were. So there are masses more stories uh, that I want to relate in my biography, but it'll be a bit of time until then.